Good to see you guys. How are you today? Doing well? Good, good, good. Well, I'm glad to, glad to be with you today. We're going to continue in our series called The Big Picture. Uh, if you're visiting today or watching online for the first time, my name's Kyle Jones, and I serve as the lead pastor here, and I want to thank you for being with us. Uh, if you have your Bible, I'd ask that you go ahead and open to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, we're progressing right along through um, what's happening at the beginning of history, right? What's happening at the beginning of the world. Uh, and so today we're going to look at Genesis chapter 3. Uh, the tone of the text today is a bit different. It, it's a bit, uh, bit more somber. It's a bit more heavy. Uh, it's, uh, it's where the fall happens, all right? This is where we see the beginning of uh, sin in our world and, and the way that it begins to take form. And so uh, we don't want to just skip over sections like this because it gives us some really keen insights into what's happening in our world. So we've said from the beginning that the big picture is the story of God's redemption. We said that it's uh, what we mean by that is that it's God's people enjoying God's presence within uh, God's place for God's purpose. All right, so God's people, God's presence, God's place, God's purpose. That is the redemption story. That's what's happening. So if that's going to be what's happening, we've had to go back to the beginning and we've examined the end of all things and what it'll look like there and how again we'll have God's people, God's presence, God's place, and God's purpose uh, will be present in that moment. Uh, and then that's also happening now where we see God's people enjoying God's presence within God's place for God's purpose. And so what happens in Genesis 3 helps us to understand what is wrong with the world. So this might be a question you've asked a lot in 2020, right? Particularly, what is wrong with the world? What is going on with the world? Because it has been cray-cray, as they say, right? It's just been wild. And so I want to ask and answer the question, what's wrong with the world today? And I want to do that from Scripture. But before we do, let me pray for us in our time in God's Word. Heavenly Father, we love You. We are grateful, Father, that You have given us Your Word, uh, that we have this in the Holy Scriptures, we have this in our Bibles. Uh, God, we ask that You would speak to our hearts and minds now. Father, help us to see Christ more clearly today. Help us to know You more fully today. Uh, Father, that we might grow up into the same image and likeness of Jesus, our Lord. Uh, we love you, and uh, we thank you for your word. We ask that your Holy Spirit would use it now to transform us in our hearts and minds. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So with, with just kind of an honest assessment of the nightly news, an honest assessment of maybe your workplace or your home, or a little more difficult here, but an honest assessment of your own heart, uh, it doesn't take long to realize that our world is not very good as we see it in Genesis 1.31 at the end of creation. It was very good, right? We, we understand now that it's not very good. I think there are maybe shadows of very good that exist. I see this in my marriage. I see this in my relationship with my kids. I see this in, as I'm watching many of you grow up into the same image of Christ Jesus. I, I see it in lots of places throughout the world um, where there are shadows of very good that still exist, um, but the world is still strikingly broken. It, it's still strikingly broken. We can observe the brokenness in all things. So 
What happened to God's very good creation as we see it at the end of Genesis 1? Well, in short, sin. Sin happened. All right, so sin happened, but I want to answer the question. I think that's getting us off a little too quickly, although it's correct. I want to answer the question, though, how did it happen and from where did it come? So how did sin happen in the beginning and from where did it come? So we know that at the end of Genesis 2, we have God has placed Adam in the garden and he's told him to what? To work it and keep it. He also issues a command to not eat of that tree over there, that tree of knowledge of good and evil, but I've given you every other tree uh, which you are to enjoy for food. And, and so you can have every other tree, but not that tree. So he's put him in the garden, work it and keep it. Part of keeping it would be protecting that command. Uh, so work it and keep it. Be fruitful, multiply, exercise dominion in the earth, subdue it. Um, these are the roles that were given to Adam at the beginning of creation. And God looks at the man and says it's not good for him to be alone, so he creates Eve. He creates a woman for the man. He brings her to the man. And the man cries out, at last, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, uh, she shall be called woman because she was taken from man. And so he is expressing just a deep intimacy there with the woman. She is exactly what God meant for her to be. She's a perfect helper for him. A helper fit for him to be fruitful, to multiply, to subdue the earth and exercise dominion. So the first marriage has happened. We have Adam and the woman, Eve, in the garden together, enjoying unbroken fellowship with God, unbroken fellowship with one another, living out the purposes of God within his place, within his presence. Amen? And then we turn to Genesis chapter 3. And we see a new character comes on the scene. Look at verse 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, which is a reference to the tree of knowledge of good and evil, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So two questions kind of arise for me when I read this text. The first is this, where did the serpent come from? Right? Verse 1 answers the question for us. It says that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So the serpent comes from God. The serpent is created by God. He is one of the beasts of the field that was created by God in Genesis chapter 1. So the serpent comes from God. We also understand that the serpent is a creation of God because Isaiah 65, when describing the new heavens and the new earth, it talks about how there will be lions and lambs there together. And it talks about how there will be serpents there. Serpents will be present. These creations of God will be present in the new heavens and new earth. No doubt the relationship between a serpent and man 
will be better than probably it is now. Many of us hear that and we're like, uh-uh, I don't want no part of that. All right? It'll be better. The Bible is not explicit as to how the serpent, though, was able to tempt the woman and lead the couple into rebellion against God. Now, it does suggest some things, and we should take these as truths. It suggests that, one, Satan inhabited the serpent and used it as his instrument to deceive the couple. So I want to answer that first. Is that even possible? Well, yes, it is. It's possible for Satan or his demons to inhabit animals. We've seen this before in Matthew chapter 8 and Mark chapter 5. They're telling the story of the demoniac who comes to Jesus and, and the serpents, or sorry, the demons cry out, Lord, what have nothing to do with us? Go from us. Leave us alone. And they cry out to be cast into the pigs that were nearby in the field. And so he, Jesus cast the serpent, sorry, the demons from the man into the swine that were nearby. This is why I don't root for the Razorbacks, right? Just kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Too soon. Sorry. <laughs> it's gonna be a lot. We have to joke with each other this year because there's nothing for me to gloat about. So um, anyway, so the point being, demons have inhabited animals before. This has happened before. Look no further than your local house cat. Right? They're awful. Um, anyway, sorry. Cat people hate me. Uh, Luke reveals that Satan entered into Judas in Luke chapter 22. It says that he entered into Judas the night when Judas was to betray Christ. Satan enters into him and uses him as an instrument in that betrayal. So we have Satan literally entering someone before. We have demons having entered into animals before. Revelation 12, 9 then helps us understand this even more fully when it reveals that the serpent in Genesis 3 is Satan. Listen to Revelation 12, 9. And the great dragon, which is just another word for serpent, the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So there we have it. Revelation 12, 9, he's thrown down. I'll, I'll fill that out more fully for you here in a little bit, but... That's the ancient serpent there, the Satan who is called Satan and the devil who is called the, the dragon there in Revelation 12 is the ancient serpent from Genesis chapter 3. So Satan inhabits that ancient serpent. He's the tempter and the deceiver of the whole world. John 8:44 confirms this when it says that Satan was a murderer from the beginning. That idea of from the beginning means literally from the very start of something. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. It goes on to say, when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So, Satan inhabits the serpent, but where did Satan and his evil ways come from? Where does, where does that originate? Well, the Bible reveals Satan was a created being also. Likely an angel who rebelled against God, leading other angels to do the same. Here's Revelation 12, a couple of verses earlier, 7 and 8, and I'll round it out with verse 9 again. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. 
2 Peter 2, 4 says very much the same. It says, God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. So Satan is a created, most likely angelic being who rebelled against God and was cast down from heaven. Since God is not the author of evil, since God does not tempt others to be evil or to do evil, because God is the author of good, He is the creator of a very good world. It would not have been very good if He had to create evil. There is no shadow within Him. There is no turning in Him, according to uh, James. Satan's evil must have come from within himself. I think this is true because we see, again, in John 8, that he was the murderer from the beginning. He's the father of lies. He's alluded to evil beginning within him, starting within him. So in Scripture, when we see evil, evil is not necessarily a thing uh, in and of itself. It's not like it exists in and of itself out, you know, outside of something, like it's a created substance. It is the absence of something. That's what evil is. It's the absence of lawfulness. This is what sin is described as. Sin is the absence of lawfulness in 1 John 3, 4. So evil is the absence of goodness, or I might say godness. Evil is the absence of godness. Evil is described in Romans 1 as ungodliness and unrighteousness. So evil does not have to be a created substance to exist. It's an anti-God attitude or a posture that sets itself against God. So all that is required for evil to exist is for creatures to exist who can choose or reject God. Thus evil can be said to have entered the world when God created beings with, as the London Baptist Confession of Faith says in chapter 9, uh, verse 1, with that natural liberty and power of acting upon choice that is neither forced nor by any necessity of nature determined to do good or evil. So Satan then is drawn in. He's enticed by his own evil desire. That evil desire was that he wanted very much to be God. He wanted to set himself up as God, which led to his rebellion. It also led to the rebellion of other angels who were thrown down with them. So Satan inhabits the serpent. Satan is evil. He inhabits the serpent, and he wants to get the woman and the man to do what he himself tried to do. He looks at man and woman and says they're created in the image and likeness of God. They, they maybe could be God. So let me see if I can get them to do my bidding. Look at verse 1b again. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? You see, the serpent begins his deception by doing what? He twists God's words. He says what God did not actually say by saying, did God actually say? No. He didn't. So Satan is here twisting God's words in the garden. And Eve tries to get it right, and she gets close. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. That's true. Neither shall you touch it. That's not true, lest you die. That's true. All right? 
So the woman responds, and she adds to God's command. She says, neither shall you touch it. Well, God never said, neither shall you touch it. So the serpent's tricks are working. The woman is now questioning God's character. She's questioning his motives. She's doubting God. And we see this in the fact that she begins to add to his commands. Look at verses 4 through 5. Satan just kind of lays all his cards on the table right here. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. So God's issued one command, you will surely die. Satan, on the other hand, says, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So what's the indictment against God here? It's that God is he's jealous, right? It's that God doesn't want anyone to share His glory. These are true statements. But he doesn't do it out of a motivation for evil. He does it out of a motivation for good and what is right and what is lovely. So the woman falls into this. Now watch what happens in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took up its fruit and ate it, and she gave some to her husband also. So she did what? Well, she looks at the tree now, Satan's saying, you will not die. You'll be like God. You'll be like God if you lead of that tree. So the woman then, she's considering this, and she looks over at the tree, and she sees it. She sees that it's a delight to her eyes. She sees that it's desired to make one wise, to make one like God, she thinks. And so she too is drawn in. She's enticed by her own evil desires, just as Satan was. She buys the lie from Satan because she desired the lie. She wanted to be God, just as he did. Remember, God created the man and the woman in His likeness, after His image. They're already like God. They, they share an intimate relationship with God. They already knew good and evil on, on a knowledge level, right? She, she knew good and evil on a knowledge level because God said, what? You can eat those trees over there, all of them. Now that's grace in God's command. You can have fruit of every one of those trees, but of that tree there in the midst, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it. So she knew what was right and what was wrong already. She had a knowledge of what is good and a knowledge of what is evil already. So what is the tree of knowledge of good and evil really about? It's about knowing evil experientially. It's about becoming evil yourself. This is what happens. She begins now... What she does is she trades her intimate, right relationship, good relationship with God for an intimate relationship with evil through her experience. And boy, does death come quickly. Look at 7 through 13. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So they knew that they were naked because of their evil. They realize now that we are sinful, that we're laid bare now before God. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man 
and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. What a depressing verse. What a depressing thought. The man and woman who once walked intimately with God now hear the sound of God coming in the cool of the day and they hide from Him. They hide themselves from Him. Created in the image of God after His likeness to be in intimate relationship with Him, to to enjoy the fellowship of the triune God, now they hide. This is awful. Verse 9, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. You see, their intimate, right relationship with God died. It died in that moment. We see the same pattern of sin now. Temptation comes. We are enticed or drawn in, led away by our own desires. We fall into sin. And in that moment, we might blame someone else. We might say, well, I wouldn't have lashed out in anger if they hadn't done that. It's really their fault. Or maybe we'll blame circumstances. I'm just really tired today. I'm, I'm, I'm really stressed out. And when sin goes unchecked, when sin is always blamed, when sin is always put on something else or someone else, it's unchecked, it's unconfessed, it's unrepented of, it gives birth to death. And that's what happens here. This is what James 1, 14-15 is describing now. We read this in home group this past week, but I want to read it again to us. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So temptation comes by our own desires. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So right before that, those couple of verses, James is explaining that God is not the author of temptation. He is not evil. He cannot tempt others to be evil. You see, our world has gone mad because we are bound to this fallen nature and these fallen desires. They are who we are now. Romans 5.12 explains this to us as it's talking about the sin of Adam and what's happened as a result. It says sin came into the world through one man. Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men. Everybody say all men. Ladies, don't get too excited because the word for men there is really the word mankind. (laughs) So it's all of us. Death spread to all mankind because all sinned. 
all sin. You understand what this means. It means we are held responsible for the sin of Adam. Because we are sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. Genesis 4 explaining Cain and Abel and the birth of Seth explains there that they were born in the image and likeness of Adam. It's not that the image and likeness of God was gone from them. We still possess the image and likeness of God. But what it was doing was separating the image and likeness of God that we saw in Genesis chapter 1 from the image and likeness of Adam, that fallen man that we see in Genesis chapter 3. And it's saying now that he was brought, these boys were brought forth in sin. Just as David exclaims in Psalm 51 when he says, In sin did my mother conceive me. Again, she wasn't committing adultery or fornication. He was brought forth in sin. This is who he is. This is who we are. We've inherited that. And so we see this very clearly in, in these texts. Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin were born into the sin of Adam. We're guilty at birth. We're guilty by our own actions of sin. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, we bring it up quite often, but it's speaking post-salvation. He's writing to the saints. These are people who are already saved in Christ. But listen to how he describes who they were before that and who mankind is at that present moment apart from Christ. He says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So he's saying, if you were not in Christ, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, you were sons and daughters, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Truth is, the world has been mad since Adam's fall. I mentioned Genesis 4 a moment ago. Some of you might know the story of Cain and Abel. Cain kills his brother Abel, but before he does... God comes to him and says, why are you angry? You see, Cain was so angry, his face had fallen. He was dejected and put out. He's angry at Abel, but he's also angry at God. And he says, God tells him, he says, if you, why are you angry? If you do well, will you not be accepted? In other words, if you obey the commands, will you not be accepted just as your brother Abel is? And if you do not do well... Everybody listen. He says, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So here we see the purpose of sin. We see what's happening in temptation. There is desire in us contrary to who we are meant to be, to who we should be, and we must rule over that. You see, Cain was enticed and led away by his own desire, just as his mother had been, just as his father had been, just as Satan had been. So now mankind is bound to his fallen nature, bound to go the way of his own desires. Now what? Now what? When we see that this is who mankind is, well, let's look at how the story ends. Start in verse 14. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you 
and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to the dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim with a, with a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. I want to point out to you in those verses two glimmers of hope within the dark backdrop of the fall. The first is in verse 15. In verse 15, we see uh, on the curse to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There will be enmity between the serpent and mankind. But this passage, especially the latter part of verse 15, has one particular offspring in mind. It uses the singular word, he. It has a person in mind. The he uh, here will be injured by the serpent. His heel will be bruised, but it will happen while he is dealing a death blow to the serpent by crushing his head. So the serpent will suffer defeat through the offspring of of the woman, one particular offspring. So Adam, hearing this, in verse 20, names his wife Eve, which means the mother of all living. Death will not reign forever, Adam concludes. That's the first glimmer of hope. The second glimmer of hope, I think, is seen in verse 21, where God clothes the naked couple. It says there, I'll read it again, and the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So God clothes the naked couple with animal skins, which requires the death of an animal. In doing so, God shows at least two things. One, He shows His complete care for the couple. His undying love for the couple. And he foreshadows in doing so the sacrificial system of atonement that is to come later in the, New Te- in the Old Testament. Why? Why does God care for the couple? Why not just give them quick judgment? Why not kill them on the scene and start over? Well, he would have been justified in doing it, no doubt. I think, though, what we get is a glimpse of God's heart in verse 22. I think we see clearly into the heart of God in verse 22 when it says, The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, 
lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. And in the ESV, the, the thought breaks. It does so in the, in the King James and the New King James also. It may not in yours, I'm not sure. But the thought breaks. He, he just ends the thought. The idea here is that the thought of man living forever in his current sinful state is more than God wants to continue to think about. So he wastes no time in kicking them out of the garden lest they eat of the tree of life, which seems to have had some way of confirming a person in their moral state. This is therefore the, God, the Lord God sent him out of the garden. Now, these are glimmers of hope because we know the offspring by name. We know him who is the he in verse 15. Amen? His name is Jesus Christ. It is Jesus who deals the death blow to the serpent through his own birth, life, death, and resurrection. It is Jesus who clothes us in his own righteousness as we see the man and woman clothed in the garden by taking our naked unrighteousness on himself. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. The payment for sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Why is it a gift of God? Why is it eternal life? Why is it through Jesus? Because He pays the payment for our sin. He pays the wages for our sin. He takes it on Himself on the cross. So the world is broken now, no doubt. Our desires are bent in on ourselves. We're bent in on us. We are all about navel-gazing, just as it was with Adam and Eve. Sin entered through Adam, and now all have sinned through his sin. Romans 3.23 makes it abundantly clear that all have fallen short of the glory of of God. All have fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. And that's what's wrong with the world, plain and simple. Sin. And the sins reveal themselves in various ways. The Bible calls them the works of the flesh. I read this list last week. I'll read it again just so we're reminded of it. They are sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, Jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. So when you look into the world today and you see it divided, you see it broken, you see it hostile, you see strife and enmity, divisions and dissensions, you need to categorize that as sin. When you see one man who shows partiality to another man based on the color of his skin, that is sin. The only answer to these sins is Jesus 
Christ and the gospel. Amen? There are no policies, there are no procedures, there are no things which we can muster in ourselves. There are no new studies, there are no new theories that can change sin in a man's heart. They might help reveal it in some way, but Jesus Christ alone answers the need, which is to be saved from sin, to be given a new heart, to be made into a new creation in Christ Jesus, where I no longer desire the works of the flesh, but I want to walk by the fruit of the Spirit which is love and joy and peace and kindness and goodness and self-control and patience. Against such things there is no law. Amen? This is the answer. The world is not without hope when we look on it and we get down about it. This Jesus who we speak of, This Jesus whom we know in Scripture is the same Jesus who dies for the sins of many who will come to Him for their righteousness. Romans 5.17, again, talking about the, the difference between the first man and the second man who is Christ, says, For if because of one man's trespass, Adam, death reigned through that one man, it says, much more will those who receive, everybody say receive, receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life. So death reigns in those who are in Adam, but life reigns in those who hide themselves in the righteousness of Christ. They will reign in life through that one man, Jesus Christ. Revelation 12, 17 says that the serpent will make war on the woman's offspring. Especially, it says, those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus Christ. So there is still a war being fought. There's very much a spiritual warfare at play. This is why Paul says we do not wage war against flesh and blood in Ephesians 6. Amen? It's not against the people who are evil. It's against the thing that is evil in them, their own evil desires. It's against Satan himself. Christ is the answer to this. So I urge you, brothers and sisters, stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm in the Lord. Keep the commandments of God. Love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Hold fast to the testimony of Jesus Christ. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that He died in your place. And you are alive now because of His death and resurrection. Hold fast to that. Don't trade that gospel for anything else. He's the victor and we are victorious in Him. Colossians 1, 21-23, it says, And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, very much like Ephesians 1-3, through He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. Do you understand this? That Adam and Eve, after their sin, hear the Lord coming in the cool of the day, they hide themselves from the Lord. 
Do you see what's restored to us in Christ? It's that we are now presented to the Father in Christ, holy and blameless. Above reproach. Meaning that when God looks at His people, there is no reproach in them because He sees Christ in them. If indeed, he say, Paul goes on to say here in Colossians, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. So don't shift from it. Don't believe in critical race theory or intersectionality or some other hope for racial reconciliation. Don't believe in this politician or that politician or this platform or that platform. Believe on the gospel of Jesus Christ because in it alone is the power to save sinners. Amen? This is what brings hope to the nations. This is what brings hope to man. This is what brings life where there is nothing but death. It says continue in the faith. Be stable. Be steadfast. Not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. Do not be led away and enticed by your own evil desires, brothers and sisters. Do not be led away. Do not be enticed. Do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Put those desires to death by taking on the Lord, by seeking the Lord above all else. I encourage you with some Scripture. Psalm 37. I want to encourage you to, to, to write down, if you have something to write with, Psalm 37. And, and go home and, and read it. It's 40 verses. I intended to read it today. I'm out of time. I can't. Let me read two verses from it for you. And you go home and read it this afternoon or in the morning. Think on what Psalm 37 is saying. Pay careful attention as you read it to the contrast between the righteous man and the wicked man. And then sing for joy when you're done reading it. Blast some music. Praise God when you read it. But let me just lay out this. Let me read 1 through 4. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. So don't be worried about evildoers. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. Also, don't look at them with envy. Saying, man, they've got a lot of cool stuff. Their life seems to be going really well and they don't give two flips about the Lord. They're not in church. They're not, doing, they're not living for Him. He says, do not envy evildoers. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Their lives are like grass against a lawnmower blade. That's how sure it is. Verse 3, As for you, trust in the Lord and do good. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land. Befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. So don't go the way of evil desires because you'll become like the wicked who is like grass against the lawnmower blade. You won't last. Go the way of the righteous by delighting yourself in the Lord, befriending faithfulness, trusting in Him, doing good. And He will replace those evil desires within you with His very own desires. He'll give you the desires of your heart. Amen? Amen.
I urge you, delight not in your evil desires, but delight yourself in the Lord of lords. Would you stand with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we love you. We're grateful for your word. We're grateful, Lord, for uh, what you've done today in your word and what we've seen today with the fall and uh, that man, that, that offspring, your son, Jesus, born of a virgin, like us in every way, and yet without sin. The only unjust death that the world has ever known. And Father, in His death, He took on our sin and Your wrath for all who will come to Him, for all who will call on His name, that they might be saved. Father, we thank You for the payment of our sin through Your Son, Jesus Christ. We glory in it. We marvel at it. Let our hearts and our minds never lose sight of the wonder that is the forgiveness we have in Christ Jesus. It's ours. Ephesians 1 says that we are seated in the heavenly places with Christ. That we have been adopted as sons and daughters in Christ. Father, we thank You for these truths. We thank You, Lord, that though death came, though sin reigned, it doesn't have dominion over our lives, but we can exercise dominion over it through Your Son, Jesus. So, Father, would You help us, brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus, help us live for Christ. Help us put to death sin in our own lives. Help us put to death uh, those desires in our own lives that we might know life in Christ. And Lord, I pray for anyone in here, anyone watching online who doesn't know You as their Savior. God, would You draw them to Yourself? Would You bring them to You in such a way, Lord, that they cannot harden their heart any longer? They can't turn from You any longer. That they must find rest in Christ. Lord, help them to come to You. Save them from their sins. Give them a new heart that they might serve You. Father, help us dwell in the land of faithfulness. Help us to trust in the Lord and do good. Give us a heart that desires what You desire by delighting in You. We love You. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.